Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. If it's screenwriting competitions you're after, well, ScreenCraft offers the best around. Their competitions are specific to genre and judged by Oscar-winning filmmakers and top literary reps. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Okay, hello Script Apart listeners. Welcome to another episode. My name's Al Horner. I sound a little bit throaty today, don't I? I'm, I'm kind of under the weather at the minute. I've been screaming at the World Cup in various pubs around London for like two weeks now, so don't feel too bad. I've definitely brought this upon myself. Um, all right, this week's show, it's a good one. My guest today is a pioneer of prestige TV. He's renowned for writing some of the best-loved episodes of The Sopranos. He created the incredible Boardwalk Empire. He's currently captivating audiences with the brand new Paramount Plus show, Tulsa King, and he's written incredible movies too. In 2013, my guest today collaborated with Martin Scorsese on the delightfully debaucherous The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, this week I had the pleasure of chatting with the one and only Terence Winter. Now, Terence didn't just write The Wolf of Wall Street, he almost was The Wolf of Wall Street, at least that's how he tells it. The 62-year-old was a stone's throw away from the film's subject, Jordan Belfort, on the day of the infamous Black Monday stock market crash of 1987. He explains in this episode how they moved in some of the same circles. He told me how he sometimes wonders what might have happened had they met in real life. The degree to which he might have been seduced into a life spent selling penny stocks in the hedonistic world of high finance. Instead, Terence moved to Hollywood in 1991, intent on writing screenplays. What happened next would help define the future of television. After a brief spell writing for sitcoms, he became a screenwriter synonymous with American criminality and the human beings behind the most monstrous behavior imaginable. Terence would go on to write 22 episodes of The Sopranos, including the famous Pine Barrens episode, which is up there with my favorite episodes of TV of all time. After that, he stepped out on his own with Boardwalk Empire, which ran for five brilliant seasons. This month, as I mentioned, Terence added a new show to his list of accomplishments, 
Tulsa King, co-created with Yellowstone's Taylor Sheridan. Starring Sylvester Stallone as a mob hand rebuilding his life and business empire following a lengthy stay in prison, it hits some familiar beats for fans of Terence's work, while also gravitating into exciting new territory. In the conversation you're about to hear, Terence breaks down for me his script for The Wolf of Wall Street and gives a spoiler-free guide to how he crafted Tulsa King. We talk about his career-long exploration of American criminality, the trick to endearing audiences to characters capable of such devastation, the construction of Wolf of Wall Street's iconic quaalude scene, and the film's really interesting legacy post-release, as parallels were drawn between the culture of con men depicted in the film and the rise of Donald Trump. It's a really fun chat spanning not just one of my favourite modern era Scorsese movies, but also one of 2022's most engrossing new shows. I really hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you as ever to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. If you'd like to get involved there, head to patreon.com forward slash script apart. We really appreciate your support. Okay, here with no further ado, this is Terence Winter discussing the first draft secrets of The Wolf of Wall Street and Tulsa King. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Terence Winter, such a joy to have you with us today. How's it going? It's going great. We uh, just had the uh, premiere of Tulsa King last night uh, on TV. It went really well. I'm getting a ton of congratulatory texts and emails from friends and family and stuff, and people online seem to really like it. So very, very happy. Yeah. Do you still get the same kind of anticipation, the same buzz when something's premiering? Like even after all these years and after all this success? Yeah, you know, you, you you spend so much time working on on something and, you know, there's there's hundreds of people involved in the project and, you know, there's just sort of, you know, this is what it's all about is finally getting it out into the world and, uh, you know, seeing how people react. I mean, the, the goal is to entertain people and it, it's a really still a really great thrill to hear that it worked or you know the best thing is to sit in an audience full of people watching it at a screening and know you know what's coming and then they laugh in all the right places or gasp in all the right places whatever it is when that works it's great but yeah the build-up is you know you sort of waiting for it and you know you're you're more excited than anybody because you're the ones who 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 made it so it's it's still just (laughs) exciting now well, I've been loving what I've seen in the show so far. I've been sent two episodes and yeah, I've had an absolute blast with it. It's also really fun to um, to watch just kind of as someone who's followed your career for a while, because, you know, there's, there's a history of American criminality spanning an entire century now that's kind of trackable in your filmography, Terence. So if Boardwalk documented prohibition era organized crime in America... If The Wolf of Wall Street documented kind of a late 80s era of kind of white collar crime, and then if The Sopranos documented the kind of somewhat uneasy transition of organized crime into the new millennium, how would you describe Tulsa King? How does this expand this almost kind of career long fascination of yours into criminality that's been the basis of a lot of your work? Well, it's it's a kind of an exploration of the decline of uh, the American, the Italian American mafia. Uh, you know, they they've kind of been uh, uh, you know eviscerated. You know, not only by the federal government and RICO laws, uh, but there's competition. You know, the, there's the Russian mob, the Albanian mob. I mean, there's you know these you know the Italian American mob used to be you know the the end of all of it. You know, they they ran it all, and now there's other very uh, you know, powerful organizations they're competing with. So, uh, it's, it's changed quite a bit. And that's sort of, you know, part of the rationalization. At least that's part of the rationalization that, 
the boss's son on Tulsa King says, you know, to go go out to Tulsa because, you know, again, there's there's nothing here for you, meaning there's not enough work to go around in a weird way. So we've got to find new uh, new territory. So this kind of explores that a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, that you are a screenwriter synonymous at this point with criminals and, and the, the kind of mechanics of their operations. That's very much something you've become, become renowned for. That, of course, isn't how it began. You know, you, you were originally, from what I understand, set out in the 90s to, to become a sitcom writer, which you did before, before moving into this, this field. After all this time, how close have you got to figuring out exactly what it is that kind of drew you into this topic? Like, does your focus on criminals come from the proximity to crime that you had kind of growing up working in the butcher shop, which I think was, was well, allegedly owned by the Gambino crime family? Or is, or is there just something kind of inherently exciting about vicariously getting to live out the lives of criminals for a couple of hours on screen? You know, it's a little of that. And it's funny, somebody asked me this question once, and I really had to think back to what was the first thing that made me fascinated. You know, and I, I grew up you know, in New York, watching a lot of the old Warner Brothers gangster movies. But it was really, honestly, the movie musical Oliver Twist, uh, Oliver, that first got me interested in gangsters. I was obsessed with the Artful Dodger. I wanted to be the Artful Dodger. I thought that was the coolest thing ever to be part of this criminal gang, to be this slick guy who could, you know, use his skills to pick people's pockets and, uh, you know, just, just to be part of that underworld gang was really, really intriguing to me. Uh, and about a year later, The Sting came out, the uh, movie with Robert Redford and, and Paul Newman about con men. So that kind of morphed to that, the whole idea of using your wits to, you know, to steal things. It just became really fascinating to me. And around the same time, I started, you know, this I'm now 12, 13 years old. I started to sort of become aware of the greater world around me in Brooklyn. And that was the the real life mob guys, you know, who I sort of, uh, you know, observed. And then I, you know, shortly after that, started working in that butcher shop. And then, you know, as I read and expanded, I just became more and more fascinated with that world and the idea of these people that lived outside the lines. So that 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 was really it. It was kind of a circumstance of where I grew up and also being exposed to, you know, it's sort of you know life imitating art in a way of you know. I, and again, it all started so funny. I mean, it's so, it sounds so innocent. You know, the Oliver is this big sprawling musical. And I was like, that was the thing that got me interested in crime and writing about criminals. But that was really it. That was ground zero for me. Which leads us really sweetly into uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, I suppose. Uh, we'll come back to Tulsa King. We're going to tackle both today. I'm really intrigued to hear how your, your writing process differs for each. One being a film, the other being, of course, streaming era TV. Um, but yeah, first and foremost, that idea of us as an audience of law-abiding citizens, mostly, um, being able to kind of like live out vicariously the lives of people who don't abide by those laws. That's really interesting to me. I, I think a truth about characters like Jordan, like Tony Soprano, all of these guys, um, something that's crucial to their enduring appeal is had a voice of morality not popped into each of our heads at kind of key junctures in our lives, it's not unfeasible to think that we might have gone down those same routes or similar ones. Like, from what I understand, that was especially true of you and The Wolf of Wall Street. You had been 15 minutes away from Jordan, like the real life Jordan, on the day of the Wall Street crash. Um, you've talked before about seeing the seduction and how easily it could have been you on that path. Can you tell me a bit about that, Terence? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, my interest in, uh, you know, con men, you know, didn't didn't end there. You know, I was a little bit of a con man myself as a kid. You know, I was a, I was a scammer from 
the, you know, early on, you know, I just love the idea. I sort of employed my own scams. I remember I had a, um, you know, I was always interested in making money, of course, you know, so I always worked I had a deep work ethic, but it didn't end that, you know, honest work. Uh, I remember I got, there was a comic book that had an ad in it that said you could sell personalized greeting cards for people and go door to door and, you know, sell personalized Christmas cards or birthday cards, whatever it was with the family's name on it. And when I got the brochure and they sent me the whole sales kit and I looked at it and I realized like I had to sell like a million dollars worth of greeting cards to make any real money. (laughs) But then I thought, you know, the con artist in me kicked in and I thought, well, if I just went door to door under an assumed name and took deposits for this and then just threw away the Sales says I could just keep the money. So I spent a couple of weekends uh, taking the bus in and, you know, to other neighborhoods in Brooklyn, went door to door, acted really nerdy and said, Oh, I'm selling these personalized greeting cards and you just have to give me a $20 deposit. And I probably took a thousand dollars worth of deposit money over the course of a couple of weekends and then just threw the sales kit in the garbage. And I was like, this is, a, you know, I was like 12 years old, 11 years old. Uh, you know, I was, I'm actually, you know, perversely proud of it. I, that I was sharp enough to do that. And also it was, of course, horrible, but I was always thinking that way. So I I had the con artist in my DNA. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, it wasn't until many years later, I was I was not until my 40s that I did my family's genealogy. And we, we did not know much about our great grandparents. It sort of ended very quick, very early. And I started to do uh, details, uh, uh, rather um, get into the details of who these people were and doing online research. And it turned out my great grandfather's address, who I knew nothing about him, uh, in 1900 was Sing Sing Prison. And it turned out he was a con man. Uh, oh. And I was like, oh, well, this is where I get this from. <laughs> so he yeah, he tried to swindle my great, great, great grandfather out of a bunch of money. And that's how they that's how they uh, they caught him. Uh, so I was like, oh, wow. Well, I wonder if this actually is in my blood. I mean, I'm not only interested <laughs> in it, but I'm actually have that propensity. So anyway, all the way flashing forward to reading about Jordan Belfort, I was like, man, there by the grace of God, you know, we're basically the same age. I grew up in Brooklyn. He grew up very nearby in Queens, which is very similar. Uh, he was a hustler as a kid selling Italian ices on the beach. And I was doing the same kinds of things in Brooklyn. And he went to Wall Street and I went to Wall Street. I was in law school at the time. He was a stockbroker and literally 15 minutes away from each other. And two, I was working for Merrill Lynch. He was le- working for LF Rothschild on the day the stock market crashed in 1987. And we were both sort of presented with, okay, what now? I sort of started to think about maybe leaving law together, very, very embryonic stages of maybe going to Hollywood and being a writer, which was my deep, dark secret. And Jordan went off to Long Island to sell penny stocks. But I'm convinced that had I met this guy, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that I would have been working with him or for him in Long Island selling penny stocks because it's something I know I could have done very well. I'm a pr- pretty good salesman, a pretty good bullshit artist, and that might not have been outside the realm of possibility. And obviously, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. But uh, I read that book. I was like, man, I totally understand this guy in, in two seconds. Yeah, I've got to say, I did come across, this is a while back now, so you'll have to correct me if I've got any of the details wrong, but... I did come across a story a while back in which you were describing some of that kind of bullshit artist, some of your capacity to kind of like bend the rules to your advantage. You were talking about when you first got to Hollywood, you obviously kind of came afoul of the fact that like you can't get an agent without a job, but you can't get a job without an agent. So essentially you posed as your own agent or you paid- Yeah, you paid a, a law I, firm I, buddy? I created a, I created an entire phony talent agency to represent myself. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, that was the irony when I got to Hollywood. 
Uh, you know, I finally found the thing I knew I absolutely wanted to do. I've been kidding myself my entire life. And it wasn't until my late 20s, I think I was 27, 28, when I really had to do some deep, dark soul searching. I was already an attorney working in a massive law firm in Manhattan. I passed the bar exam in New York and Connecticut. Uh, you know, really by all on paper was very successful, but I was absolutely miserable. And I finally uh, woke up one morning and just said, OK, what do you want to do when you wake up in the morning? Forget the, the law degree and the, the, you know, the big fancy job. What do you how do you don't want to spend your day? And the big, deep, dark secret was I wanted to be a writer and specifically a comedy writer. And the reason I, I chose sitcom writing was initially you know, I, well, I thought I was funny, but m more importantly, I couldn't imagine writing anything that took longer than 30 minutes. Uh, the idea of writing a movie was like impossible. How do you tell a story over two hours? It's so unwieldy. Even an hour felt so daunting to me. But 22 minutes, I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I watched a billion hours of sitcom programming by that time. And I thought, I understand the rhythms of how this works. So that was specifically you know, what, what I initially wanted to do, but uh, it, it started there. So jumping forward a few decades to The Wolf of Wall Street, you discover this book and from the sounds of it, you absolutely tear through it in one sitting. Um, you've, you've previously described the film being an analogy for American life and uh, there being a certain uh, Kardashianization, I suppose, of like American behavior and aspiration that, that you immediately identified as being able to tap into with this tale. It sounds like you got you, you had a pretty immediate sense that you could tell an entertaining story here that could also speak to a wider trend in where the culture was heading at the time. Can you tell me about that process, Terence, uh, of yeah, potential stories that you might want to take on, passing like a threshold, I suppose, of not just being entertaining, but also having something to say, something that elevates it beyond just being a series of scenes in which bad people commit bad deeds. Well, you know, Tulsa King is a good example as well, you know, on its face. And I, I inherited this idea from Taylor Sheridan, uh, you know, on its face. It's about a, a 75 year old man who goes to, you know, a strange city and, you know, kind of, you know, plants a flag. For me, what made it really interesting, I said, wow, there's something fascinating about a man at toward the, you know, in, in the twilight of his years who now has to rethink everything he believed in. Uh, you know, there's a guy who's lived by a code of ethics and, you know, uh, the mafia code of America uh, his whole life and has believed in this wholeheartedly and now has the rug pulled out from under him and is now questioning everything he ever believed. That's 75 years old. And he realizes that the people he had, he thought had his back do not give a shit about him. And now he's, he's only got a limited amount of time left and a limited amount of skills left. And he's estranged from his family in a, in a strange place. So that was the thing that I thought that it's about something bigger than just what it is. And Wolf of Wall Street was the same thing. I mean, even though it was the rise and fall of, uh, you know, this, this Wall Street, uh, you know, white collar criminal, you know, it really spoke a big, the, you know, the thing that hit me that it, it was, it was more holding up a mirror to society was the idea that when there was an article, a very unflattering article written about Jordan Bell in a magazine that he thought was going to be the end of his career. And then when he came to work on Monday morning, there were dozens of guys there wanting jobs. I was like, they, they completely took the wrong message from this article. All they saw was this guy's making a fortune. And that's the thing I was like, oh my God, people don't care about 
whether it's legal or illegal, all they know is the guy has a Lamborghini and he makes a shit ton of money and he wears Rolexes and he's got this huge house. And, and you know, that that's there's nothing sadly more American than that. It's really the the means justify the ends. You know, it's sort of like, wow. I mean, it's it, there's no, you know, and, and you can sort of sh- hold that same mirror up to politics where it's just it's all about winning. It's not about whether it's right or wrong. It's like we won. And it's like, OK, well, but but at what cost? And that was really the thing that got me hooked on Wolf. Yeah, in terms of holding up a mirror to society, as you say, I was having a conversation with my friend when I was I was telling them I was chatting to you, Terence, and uh, I was like, yeah, I think we're going to speak at length about Wolf of Wall Street. And they said, oh, cool, you're getting ahead of the 10-year anniversary. I said, there's no way this oh film's 10 God. years old. I'm, well, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. Like, I think partly... Uh, my brain can't comprehend that this film was released in 2013. I can't either. Well, for me, it's kind of, it's partly because it just, it does just feel like yesterday that the film came out, but, but also I've always regarded it like as such a Trump era movie thematically that I, I think that's where my brain kind of bumps up against something. Trump was, uh, you know, as you mentioned politics, he was, and is, I suppose, a salesman whose success was built on a succession of mirages. And, and like Jordan, he'd, he'd reel people in with this dream of wealth and riches and yachts and respect. Right. But ultimately what he was selling these people was to their detriment. Right. It must've been a crazy journey for you with this film, like after it came out, seeing it kind of, well, presumably take on a bit of a new relevance, a new urgency. Yeah, I mean, it was and it's sort of I had the same same reaction where, you know, you get you say, OK, this is a, a cautionary tale. And, you know, Jordan's not meant to be a hero. And yet, uh, you know, there were a, a, gener- a new generation of young men who want to be Jordan Belfort. Like, yeah, no, that's, not, that's yeah. not what we're trying to do here. And I have no control over that other than say, here it is. Take away from it what you will. But a lot of what, you know, a lot of young people were taking away was I want to be that guy. And I want to live that. I mean, there's, there's like apparently like a big rap song dedicated to Jordan. And he's, you know, he's it, it, the whole that whole movie is, has become uh, kind of a cult favorite among, you know, uh, particularly young men uh, and some young women, I imagine. But it's like the, completely the opposite of what what we intended. Uh, but yeah, the Trump uh, thing, uh, you know, we were, I guess we were a little prescient in terms of predicting, you know, that, that you know, a, a Jordan Belfort type was going to be running the world, you know, or, or our world, certainly. Uh, and, you know, and honestly, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to compare Jordan to Trump. Jordan's not nearly <laughs> Jordan's actually a very decent guy, you know, as it turns out. I mean, he's one of these people, you know, who you know, kept drawing lines for himself in the sand of like, I, I, okay, I'll, I'll do this, but I'd never do that. And then, you know, because of his addiction and his, his just circumstance, he kept drawing these lines in the sand. And before he knew it, he was underwater and then it was too late, you know, and now, you know, he's actually, you know, made great, you know, strides trying to rectify the sins of the past. And certainly Trump, you know, is just doubling and tripling down on, on his behavior. So uh, it's not really a fair comparison. Had you anticipated that some people would interpret this cautionary tale as something aspirational. I didn't really think about it. Um, you know, and I guess, I guess even I had, I would have, I, I would feel foolish now to have that much faith in people because, you know, they, they, they kind of in general make, make the bad choices, you know, and the, the easy choices. And, you know, again, and, you know, look, it's just, again, a very American thing. People want to be success and they value success over everything else. You know, and it doesn't matter how you made the money. It's just the fact that you have it. And you're successful and it doesn't matter if you're you did it legally or illegally. I mean, we, we tend to admire people who they got theirs and uh, you look the other way when you find out how they did it. 
yeah, watching the film and rereading the script, it, it feels like your your goal, your only goal was to tell that story truthfully and in a style kind of befitting of the zoo that was his life and Wall Street at the time. Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to take a uh, a position, you know, I wasn't trying to yeah. paint, you know, that's not I, I don't view that as my job. My job is to tell the story and then you take away from it what you will, you know, for if you know, I don't, you know, same thing like I don't need to, you know, uh, you know, for example, oh, let's have a moment where he's sympathetic and he saves a cat from a, you know, a kitten out of a tree so people <laughs> like him. I just you know, you just sort of paint pe- people in all of their colors and then you know, in general, you even with the worst people, you know, nobody's all one thing. You know, nobody's mm-hmm. all bad or all good. There are moments of, you know, if not uh, empathy, you know, or sympathy, you'll, you'll find something at least relatable. You know, like a Tony Soprano, you know, loves his daughter, loves his family. And you go, all right, well, you know what? I love my family. I, I understand that. Or he's got, you know, insecurities and there are moments of uh, relatability, at least, where you go, okay, I get it. You know, we I did Boardwalk Empire. Al Capone was one of the characters. And one of the great gifts of doing a long-form TV series is that you get to spend a lot of time with these characters. So normally in a movie, you'd meet Al Capone at the height of his power when he's a gangster with the white fedora and the cigar and the machine guns. You know, you don't really get a lot you get a lot out of that other than he's a bad guy. But on in our series, you got to meet Al Capone as a young man. Uh, you first meet him, he's he's literally the kid driving somebody else's truck. And he grows to be the Al Capone we know, love, and hate. Uh, but in, so then you, you meet his family, you meet his wife, you, you realize he has a, a deaf son who he adores. And, uh, you know, by the time he goes to prison in the last episode, uh, we had a scene where he says goodbye to his son and people called me up and said, I can't believe you made me cry for Al Capone. You know, I was actually shedding tears over this horrible, horrible man. But I said, because you, you you now know him in in all of his aspects, not just the, the gangster stuff. It's like, oh, he actually has a kid and you can relate to that. It's a really difficult needle to thread, though, in a screenwriting sense. Anyone who's tried to write a, a soprano style story, a boardwalk style story, like they can hopefully attest that, you know, making a character likable despite the egregiousness of their behavior, finding something human in the monster it's a tricky right. thing to pull off. You know, wh- when you look at Sopranos, like you can see the construction of like, I think I think it was David who wrote this episode, but I think it's the pilot with the ducks. And it's such a sort yeah. of obvious kind of like signaling of this, there's something sweet buried within this person capable of such violence. Right. When you look back on like Wolf of Wall Street, was it as hard kind of finding ways to make him likable? And was there anything you had to keep out from his true life story uh, to make sure you kept audiences on on board? No, I mean, you, you, you pretty much get the full brunt of, of how dark it got, you know, with the, you know, his, his the drug addiction and obviously, you know, the, the, uh, the criminality and his relationship with Nadine and, you know, the violence, you know, that was born of the addiction and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, Jordan is very likable, you know, but before I started writing the script, I met him. A bunch of times I had dinner with his parents. I had dinner with a uh, lunch with Nadine, the real Nadine, the, the, um, uh, his, his ex-wife. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's very charming, obviously, you know, he's a great salesman, but he's, you know, he, he started out as this really ambitious, hardworking kid from Queens. And then again, like I said, just devolved into that guy. Uh, so it wasn't hard. I knew if I sort of just depicted him truthfully, 
that there would be moments of, you know, he's he's funny and 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 likable and and again very very much there by the grace of God for a lot of people. They're like, yeah, you know what? I can I understand how he uh, you know here's a guy who you know he works on Wall Street, he gets trained as a stockbroker, and he's ready to go, and now suddenly he can't make a living, and he kind of goes to this other place and slowly gets roped into this other way of doing things and you know the the natural con artist in him comes out and then again before you know it you know you add cocaine and quaaludes to that mix and you're off to the races one thing that really struck me on this recent read through is i don't think i really had noticed before how the film refuses to lean too heavily on the iconography of the era like many filmmakers i think would have really lent into the sort of 80s-ness of it all and gone to town on the fashion the music and and other signifiers of that decade you and Marty had obviously made a decision not to do that. And as a result, like it feels like much more of a timeless piece. W- was there kind of a particular reason behind that? Obviously, the kind of greed driving Jordan is still alive in our culture today. So, yeah, I had wondered whether you'd, you'd talked about not making it too 80s and risk having audience interpret this as this behavior as a relic of a different moment in American capitalism. Yeah, we, the truth is we did not talk about it. And that's that's a better question for Marty. And I mean, look, there's, there's literally not... A, a moment uh, or a, a visual or a word that Marty does not think about very deeply. So I'm sure this is a very specific choice that he made. And maybe it's what, you know, your your analysis of it sounds right, that it feels more timeless. It doesn't feel like a period piece or a commentary on the 80s and the Wall Street era greed is good kind of stuff. It's just more of a, a tale for any time. And it, well, the interesting thing, too, is there there was an actual there was a book and a movie and I think a silent movie in the 20s called The Wolf of Wall Street about a Wall Street swindler. Uh, you know, so it's sort of like it's so funny. A hundred years later, it's still the same. You know, Wall Street is always going to attract people like Jordan and people who are looking to make a fast buck. So in a way, it is a timeless story. Terrence, you were a new parent, I believe. 2007, you sat down to write this. Um, From what I understand, the first draft was basically unchanged, pretty much the shooting script. At the outline stage, though, were there were there things that you uh, you had explored that didn't make didn't make this draft? Were there kind of other avenues that you contemplated before realizing that's not the right approach? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever I adapt something, um, you know, what I look for is, you know, what I call movie moments. I go, this has to be in the movie. Oh, what a great moment. This has to be in the movie. Uh, and, you know, I circle them in the book or the article, whatever I'm, I'm reading. And the problem with The Wolf of Wall Street is they ended up circling practically the entire book. And I was like, <laughs> okay, now what do I do? This is going to be a 14 hour movie. I basically had to go back and find uh, a through line of the movie that told the whole story. Uh, and that wasn't 14 hours long. So there were scenes that didn't make it in the movie. There were some scenes that got combined. A good example is, uh, there's a scene where, uh, you know, the, the big quaalude scene, uh, it, you know, Jordan, t- oh, you know, takes too many quaaludes and then has to drive his car home. Uh, that scene. And then when he gets home, uh, he finds Donnie's choke, starts choking on the ham sandwich. That, those two incidents, the choking and the quaalude scene were actually two separate scenes. That we combine, and that saves some time and enable us to to make the movie in a in a reasonable amount of time. So there's a lot of that stuff. Well, actually, one thing that um, we should talk about is is what's left out because you know it, it struck me rereading the script that um, you don't really show the victims of Jordan scamming. And well, I suppose there are kind of two benefits of this. Firstly, it does allow the audience to stay on board with the character and not be kind of uh, too up in their heads about the impact of his behavior. 
But also that is an absolute reflection of Jordan's lack of empathy for his victims at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't get the impression that people like Jordan think about those that suffer as a result of their actions, that they're able to kind of perform like a type of uh, mental gymnastics to, to exclude the victims uh, from, from their own kind of personal narratives. Can you talk me through like that decision? Was that again, something that came in intuitively or had you and Marty discussed that? We did discuss it in a way we sort of arrived at the idea that, you know, you're, you, the audience are the client, you're being sold uh, the story, you know, Jordan is selling you his version of events. And by the end of it, you know, you, you're just as taken in with Jordan as his clients were, you know, you, you, you know, you didn't lose anything. Hopefully you've gained, you've been entertained for a couple of hours, but in a weird way, you're in the position of a person who's on the other end of the phone from Jordan, letting him charm you and, 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 you know, sell you this, you know, this, this fantasy. Uh, so that was sort of the, the bigger, the bigger thing, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there is a, uh, a disconnect with criminals in general where they don't think about the victims. They can't, you know, I mean, if you psychologically lay in bed at night and think of the impact your horrible deeds have had on the people you've perpetrated them upon, it, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. So you just put it out of your mind and keep going and don't worry about it. Or you rationalize, you know, well, you know, they, they, they thought they were getting a great, I mean, every, you know, like, this is the old expression, you can't cheat an honest man. I mean, you're, you're selling somebody something, you know, they think they're getting a great deal. They think they're swindling you in a weird way. So you rationalize, well, they thought they were getting a great deal. And actually, they didn't realize I was robbing them, but they were actually trying to rob me, you know, which may or may not be true. But that's how I think a lot of a lot of criminals view it. As a result, the film mainly plays through Jordan's perspective, with the exception of kind of the net closing in the cops, the FBI, you know, we spend not actually that much screen time with Kyle Chandler, but man, he's so good in this film. Yeah. Can you tell me about sprinkling that in the sort of culmination of claustrophobia is you can feel the grip tightening on, on Jordan and his ability to sort of maintain this lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, there had to be something on the horizon, you know, that, that was, that was closing in on this guy, you know, just, just in terms of conflict, otherwise it would have been pretty much smooth sailing for him, you know, for most of the movie. Uh, so we had to, we had to show the other side that something out there was looming, uh, unbeknownst to Jordan, you know, for, for the first part, certainly, but no, you know, at least for the audience to know that there, there is another shoe that is going to drop at some point that he is on the, uh, on the radar of the FBI and particularly this one agent. You know, the other thing we wanted to really show is the idea that, you know, here's, you know, here's a guy who, you know, a, a federal agent who's, living by the books and you know, doing the right thing. And, you know, he's, you know, by the end of the movie, he's on the subway with a bunch of other people. And Jordan is still, you know, despite the fact that he's been arrested and gone to jail is still going to always live better than the people who do the right thing and, and arrested him. And, you know, just the irony of that was something that was really interesting to us. Was it difficult balancing what people do know and what they don't know about that world? Like this sort of IPOs and these kind of jargony things. I mean, obviously there's that moment in the story where Jordan begins explaining something and then goes, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, you don't care. You, you, here's right. what you basically need to know. Was, right. was kind of working out how to kind of cut through that and get to the kind of thesis of the movie. Was was that tricky? I mean, the, the film does start with this incredible opening scene that kind of plunges you into Jordan's world where yeah, he has a great monologue about how money doesn't just buy you a better life, better food, better cars, better pussy. It also makes you a better person. You can give generously to the church of your choice or the political party. 
Uh, in fact, there's a line in the script that didn't make it into the film. But most of all, in any country in the world, money can buy you love. Fuck the Beatles. <laughs> I don't know why that didn't make it in. That's a great line. Yeah. Can you tell me about how, uh, about working out how to communicate all this quite theoretically quite unwieldy stuff, how to communicate it to, to an audience of kind of popcorn movie fans? There was much more of it, much more of the jargony stuff in there uh, initially. And I thought we really needed it. I really wanted to explain that. People are going to wonder, how does this work? Uh, and, you know, it, it ended up uh, changing quite a bit when I, you know, had, in the in the six weeks leading up to pr- the actual production of the movie, I pretty much met with Marty and Leo every night to go through the script scene by scene and talk about it. So Marty, particularly, you know, every time we would get to something particularly jargon heavy, would say, how does this work again? So I don't really get this. And I would start to explain it. And I finally realized, I said, you know what? I said, this, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of like, uh, you know, a science fiction movie when, you know, they started explaining about how the, you know, how exactly how the, the engine of the ship works and, and how it's going to explode. And if the flux capacitor overloads at some point, it's like, once they start talking about that stuff, all, all the audience really hears is blah, 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 blah. And usually, like in the science fiction, what you need to know is if that red light goes on, we're fucked. The ship is going to blow up. <laughs> so it's similar here. You know, when you start, Jordan starts explaining you know, how an IPO works. Basically, what he what he could basically say is, you know what, you don't you don't care about this. It's not important. All you need to know is we made ten million dollars in five minutes, and that's it. That's really all you want to know. It's all you care about. So we said, why don't we just shine a light on it? And literally, Jordan can say it right to the audience. It doesn't matter, you know, all the all the technical jargon. The one thing I did want to show, uh, you know, was was the actual sales technique, the actual uh, psychology of how do you sell somebody uh, a penny stock? You know, how do you sell a rich person a penny stock? And there's that sequence in the movie where Jordan starts to explain it to the guys. And then slowly you see them on the phone and you cut to them giving the sales pitch of how do you say, well, you know, if look, if, you know, Al, if you think the, you know, if you, if you agree IBM stock is going to go up, then what's preventing you from buying IBM? Obviously, if you know it's going up, why would you not give me $5,000 today? And, you know, and you see how the slow reeling and you sort of take the client and put them, box them into a corner and almost use their own words and their own agreement with you to come to an inevitable conclusion, which is they should give you money and buy whatever it is you're selling them. So that was something I thought was accessible for the audience and easy to understand and entertaining to watch how the Jordan developed the system and also just show you how smart and what a great salesman Jordan was. So that, that I felt was important to keep, but the, the technical stuff, it doesn't matter. Again, all, all you really want to know is we made $10 million in five minutes. <laughs> Can you tell me about some of the other things that you began to tinker with and whether this particular uh, element was one of the things that kind of adjusted as, as production approached because, uh, yeah, I didn't notice this in the script. In the finished movie, Jordan's kind of Yoda of sorts, his mentor setting him on his way is is Mark Hanna, who was played by um, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. The dinner they share in the finished film, it kind of ends with Mark leading Jordan through this tribalistic, chest-beating kind of guttural, right. I don't know if you'd call it a song, but it's something approaching that. Mm. I didn't see that in the script. So I wondered whether that was something that kind of came quite late on and sort of and, and yeah, what, what you saw that kind of representing that tribalistic noise, because it comes back that, later in the film. Yeah, that came so late. It was actually in the middle of filming that I had nothing to do with that. And I wish I could take credit for it. That was all <laughs> uh, Matthew McConaughey. Jordan and Matthew were shooting that scene. Uh, and in between takes, Matthew would start 
beating his chest and kind of chanting a little bit. And finally, Leo said, what are you doing? And Matthew said, well, this that's how I stay you know, energized. I get myself pumped up. And uh, Leo said, oh, that's really fun. Why don't we play with that? And, you know, that's the great thing about working with, you know, uh, actors who who are very good at ad-libbing and also a director who is very comfortable and encouraging presiding over ad-libbing and chaos of like letting the actors just do whatever they want. Uh, you know, sometimes that's where the gold is. And certainly it was in this case. So they started just riffing on, you know, Jordan saying, like, what are you doing? And then they do it with me and do the And it, it became such a fun thing that Marty then ended up calling it back at the end of the movie. But again, I wish I had anything to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. Um, and, I, and I get credit for it all the time. I go, oh, thank you. That's <laughs> great. But it's actually Matthew McConaughey. You know, and again, like I said, when you get actors like uh, you know, Leo, Jonah Hill, Matthew McConaughey, uh, Kyle Chandler, Margot Robbie, who are comfortable adling, living and doing great. They only take what's there and elevate it and make it bigger and broader and better. So while, you know, the first draft, you know, you clearly can read it and go, oh, yeah, this is the movie. But you go, there's so much else in there. And a lot of that stuff is it happened on the day. It happened because the actors were, you know, willing to try things and that Marty was willing to take them down those roads and say, why don't you play with this, play with that? Uh, and that's um, that's how he does it. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and are wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more, or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything, and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And to continue skipping through a couple of the kind of key scenes from the film, Terence, uh, we touched on the, the Quaalude scene earlier. Like that's one of the biggest, most elongated laughs I've ever experienced in a cinema. And the, the whole scene is kind of Chaplin-like in its slapstickness. Right. Did you, like... After doing this for so long, do you have a bit of a sixth sense when you've got something down on the page like that is going to pop off in a cinema? Audiences are going to really respond to this scene. Did you have a sense in this instance that that I was going to be one of the I didn't moments? know how great it was going to be. I When I read the book, I mean, that sequence was hilarious. And then when I scripted it, 
Uh, I, you know, as you mentioned before, I, I, at the time, I originally wrote the movie in 2007. So we had a newborn uh, and my wife was, uh, was breastfeeding the baby. And she, I gave her the screen. I gave her that scene to read. And she started laughing so hard reading it that she almost dropped the baby. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I, I have something really good here. So if that was the reaction I got from just re- somebody reading it on the scripted page, uh, you know, cut to, you know, years later when I when I saw Leo actually do it, I came home and I had seen the screen before my wife saw it. And I came home and I said, remember how hard you laughed reading that? Wait until you see Leo do this. And originally, Marty had planned to do coverage in that scene, which means you're going to he's going to film the angle this film, the film, the scene from different angles, cover it from different camera angles. And the first angle was, OK, it's a wide shot of the staircase and you just see Leo come down and then he was going to do it from the side and from overhead and everything else. Well, Leo was so unbelievably funny in that one wide shot that Marty said, I'm done. I don't need any other angles. We're just going <laughs> to let this play out in real time. And I don't know how many minutes it is. And it's got to be like four minutes of Leo trying to get down those stairs and into that car. And it's just, you just lock off the camera and let him do it. And it's, it's, that's, what's in the movie. And I, you know, I've seen it in theaters with people and you're right. I mean, people laughing for four minutes straight and Leo <laughs> is so committed. It's so unbelievable to watch him do that and realize that, you know, he's not actually on Quaaludes. He's acting. That's all. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, the crescendo of that scene, like you're laughing so hard the first time you watch it that it, it takes a few rewatches. It takes a few read-throughs of the script to notice like, the, yeah, the, the crescendo that it runs to and the way that like it amps up and amps up and then has this incredible culmination with uh, Jonah Hill's character almost choking. It's so funny. The scene where Jordan announces, I'm not leaving, I'm not fucking leaving. That's That's obviously mm. another one of the kind of big scenes that people remember. What do you think that moment says about the addictiveness of money? Obviously, you write into that scene kind of an emotionality and a sense of family that that contributes to Jordan's inability to get out while he's ahead. But um, yeah, as as the guy kind of charged with getting under under Jordan's skin, why do you think he couldn't walk away? What's happening in that scene? I think he was addicted to the adoration of of his people. Uh, you know, he. Um, the real Jordan would get up every day, twice a day and give these incredible speeches to his sales force. And he's an incredibly gifted public speaker. Uh, you know, when I started writing the script and researching the script, I said, yeah, you know, these reading about these speeches that you gave, I said, I, I said, I'd love to see, you know, a tape of you. Do you have some videotape I can watch? And he said, God, I, I never tape myself doing it. And I said, wow, that's incredible. And I said, if I got a conference room, for example, at CAA, the talent agency, and packed it with, you know, agents and assistants on their lunch hour, would you come in and recreate one for me? And he said, oh, my God, I haven't done this in 15 years, but yeah, sure, I'll try. So we did that. CAA gave me a conference room and we packed it full of people. And Jordan came in on, I think it was a Friday afternoon, and he was a little nervous. He said, God, God, this is so weird, you know, to do this. And he got up and he had a big whiteboard. And I think it took him about 20 seconds to warm up. And once he got rolling, it was astounding. And I just sat there with a tape recorder and uh, or my phone, I guess, and uh, and let him rip. And 
he was magnificent and he was like interacting with people in the audience and as if they were part of the sales team and asking them questions and where do you think we are in the sale and how do you do and, and goofing on people and, and it was laughing and it was it was just unbelievable and he, he probably talked for about 15 minutes but completely off the top exp- extemporaneously brilliant and he used to do this every day and i think you know, he fed off the crowd, you know, and I could see it that day. And I know he got it from the people, you know, he worked with at, at Stratton Oakmont, you know, who were really making money and, you know, that really loved him and worshipped him. This was the guy who, you know, he was the Pied Piper who showed them how to how to become rich. So he would get up there and give you this 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 sales talk that was just like a punch in the arm every day. It's like, get out there and get on those phones. They were they would. You know, they were like an army. They would do anything for this guy. So I think he really became addicted to the love and adoration and the admiration. So when it came time to stand up there and say, I'm walking away, I'm going to cash out and stay home and watch my daughter take, you know, horse riding lessons. It slowly started to dawn on him that he was going to leave this. And, you know, again, also, you know, I have to imagine probably a little bit of the addictive personality and the drug addiction talking as well. But to, you know, to stand up there and say, fuck the FBI and they're not going to get me. It's like, yeah, (laughs) not a great idea, (laughs) but you know, and, and then, you know, of course everybody wants to pretend to be, you know, like they're above all that shit and they're, you know, they're tough guys. And, you know, and then, you know, for the crowd to go, yeah, fuck them, you know, and, you know, you feel like you're the king of the world. They're never going to get you. And of course that is not how that works. You know, there's what, what, you know, if any group is is scarier than the mob, it's the federal government, it's the IRS, the FBI, they will get you and uh, and, and they're coming and then there's nothing you can do about it. So that's the deal. And uh, he certainly found that out. Let's talk about the ending. Like, I understand in terms of accuracy and truth, why you ended the film where you did. But thematically, what was so perfect, do you think, about bringing the story to a close with with Jordan in front of this crowd of wide-eyed people with hopes and dreams of being rich and and kind of bringing back that, that idea of him asking people to sell him a pen? Like that one of the kind of readings of the film and the meaning of that ending was the idea that this we're calling back to that scene earlier in the movie. Perhaps Jordan hasn't learned a lesson from any of this, and perhaps neither has America. The fact there are still people lining up to absorb his his wisdom or quote unquote wisdom. What did you kind of intend with that scene? Well, exactly that, exactly that, that this will this will continue, you know, whether or not it continues and these skills are used for ill rather than good is really up to the person learning how to sell. But basically, you know, the, 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 uh, the roller coaster ride will, you know, will continue. Certainly, you know, the real Jordan, uh, is a motivational speaker and sales trainer now who goes all around the world. You know, and the idea is, of course, you know, you can use this, you can use the, these techniques to sell, you know, medical equipment that's actually doing people the world of good and not robbing people. But, you know, again, depending on how you're approaching this, it's really, you know, you, you can use this for, for good or for evil. And, you know, hopefully people are using it for good. But, uh, yeah, that was kind of the idea that, you know, Jordan, you know, did go to jail and he got out. But, you know, he's, he, he, what he does is still in demand. People still want to be him. Uh, and he's going to continue to do what he does. You sound quite positive on Jordan and uh, you, you've described him as a decent guy. It seems like he's had some sort of journey of reconciling with some of his behavior and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But th- there, there were people, however, of course, who like uh, witnessed the trajectory of Jordan after the film's release and saw that kind of for all the hurt that he had caused, he still came out of the, the, the film with one million in movie rights and this kind of renewed public platform. 
the film had kind of immortalized him in a way. And, and as you kind of spoke to earlier, there were people that kind of interpreted him as a, as a hero. Was there any part of you that had any kind of unease about that? Or, you know, was it just kind of part of the bargain? This is ultimately like a pretty anti-capitalistic tale, I think, to anyone kind of watching the film from my perspective with their head screwed on. Like, mm-hmm. did, did you kind of just see that as part of a necessary evil in terms of making this film? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I, I try to approach it without judgment myself. You know, I tell the story, you know, the audience can take away from, from it what they will, you know, in terms of the real Jordan, look, the guy went to jail. He, he, he did his time. Uh, he's paid back a, a certain amount of money. I don't know. There's a lot of debate on has he paid back enough or all of it or, or some of it, but I know he has uh, obviously given up quite a bit. I mean, he did, you know, he, paid his debt to society in a way. So, okay. And he is remorseful. Uh, he is earning money and, you know, doing what he does you know, best. He's a salesperson and a motivational speaker. And again, you don't, you don't have to like the guy, uh, but I happen to, I, I, I know him personally and I know he's a decent guy. Uh, it's complicated. He's not perfect, nor, you know, nor am I or anybody else. So, uh, you know, I don't think you have to decide, you know, he's all good or all bad. You know, like I said, everybody is made up of all these different colors, but on balance, uh, this is a guy I really like and a guy who I think is a decent person. Uh, you know, has he hurt people? Absolutely. He's the first one to admit that he's hurt, he hurt his own family, his wife, his kids. I mean, he's, you know, nobody will cop to that quicker than Jordan. Uh, so again, it's, it is, a, it is complicated, but you know, I don't know that anybody has to take a hard and fast position one way or the, or the other. Yeah. I think uh, a running thread in your, your work seems to be trying to understand problematic people rather than condemn them on the page. Do you right. think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, there are limits. I mean, uh, you know, there are certain people who, you know, I don't know that I could paint Osama bin Laden now to be a, you know, a great guy. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, could I want to, but you know, or Hitler, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I don't really care that he liked his dog. Uh, but you know, the Jordan Belfort's of the world, you know, maybe a little. The first draft of Wolf of Wall Street, as we touched on, pretty closely resembled the finished film. Tulsa King, on the other hand, well, the first draft, from what I understand, of the pilot wasn't even set in Tulsa. It was Kansas City, and the title of the show was then. Well, Kansas City King, I presume. <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners the kind of reasoning behind that evolution and and how this thing landed in your hands? Yeah, when, when I first read it, when I first read it, it was actually just called Kansas City. Uh, I had gotten a call from my agent, uh, who also represents Taylor Sheridan, who, of course, is the creator uh, of Yellowstone and uh, 19 other shows, apparently, it, it <laughs> seems at this point. It's like every time I turn on my computer, there's another Taylor Sheridan show being announced. <laughs> And my agent called me up and he said, hey, Taylor wrote a pilot really quickly, like over the course of a weekend, uh, about an aging mobster who goes to Kansas City. And Sly Stallone is apparently attached to do this. Uh, and Taylor, you know, being so busy, couldn't can't possibly do this, too. But he suggested, well, what if, if Terry Winter would want to take it over? That would be great. And I said, Taylor Sheridan, Sly Stallone, let me think about this. And I thought about it for about a nanosecond, like comment, <laughs> absolutely. So he sent me the pilot and I read it. And I thought it was really fun, uh, but I had my own ideas. So I had a Zoom call with Taylor and I said, yeah, it's, a, it's something really interesting about, you know, again, this 75 year old man who's sort of, you know, at the uh, at the twilight of his life, who's sort of forced to reinvent himself. I said, I, I, if I were to do it, I said, you know, the interesting thing 
you know, but the premise is that he is being sent from New York. This is a New York mobster being sent to basically a place that has no connection to the Italian-American mob. And the truth is, Kansas City has a very long and storied history with the Italian-American mob. If you remember Martin Scorsese's movie Casino, when the guys are in Las Vegas and they're calling back home, they're actually calling Kansas City. You know, so yeah. I said, it's Kansas City really not the right location for this if we want to really put him in the middle of what he considers nowhere. So I said, you know, uh, from my perspective, you know, looking at the map, Oklahoma feels to me as a New Yorker, like the middle of nowhere. I mean, more specifically, Tulsa, Oklahoma. There is no Italian-American mob presence there whatsoever. So uh, I changed that. And then I said, you also, you know, in, in Taylor's original draft, uh, the character Dwight, whose name's Sal at that point, uh, was just a, you know, kind of a, you know, as he described himself, a low-level bag man, you know, collects money for the mob. I said, what if, what if he was a, actually a very formidable mob capo who's been in jail for 25 years? And he gets out and he really thinks he's going to get rewarded. And he's kept his mouth shut and he's adhered to that code of Omerta. And he really is expecting to get now what he uh, what he expects. And instead, the boss's son is now in charge. And the boss's son desperately wants to get rid of this guy because he knows he's not half the man Dwight is. And they basically ship him out to Tulsa to kind of just go away and die. And now he realizes that everything he gave his life to is bullshit. That that code is worthless. These people don't have his best interests in mind. And he gave up everything, not only to give up a third of his life, but he's estranged from his daughter and gave up his actual family. And he's only got a limited amount of time left to do it and very limited conflict resolution skills and work skills. He's still a mobster and he still has to earn money. And he's basically still in prison in a place, you know, that for him might as well be another planet. So those are the things I want to explore. And Taylor said, great, this is your baby. I just have visitation rights. Go. <laughs> and that was the, pretty much the one and only time I met Taylor. Uh, we met in person uh, one other time right before we started production. We had dinner and uh, that was it. Those are literally I, I only had two conversations with the man in the whole time. And he's been great and just sort of letting us go and do our thing. And uh, we went off to Oklahoma and shot it. And uh, that was uh, an adventure. One of the great kind of textural elements to to the show is the fact that, yeah, as you mentioned, we've got, we've got Dwight played, of course, by Sly Stallone, finishing a 25 year prison sentence, stepping back into a world now that is so alien to him. Like it, it's a world of Ubers and kids recording TikToks outside coffee shops where, you know, a coffee will set you back five bucks. It wasn't like that when he, when he was going into, yeah. into prison, he can't wrap his head around a lot of it. And we're seeing simultaneous to kind of his, his sort of criminal ascent we're seeing this journey of him kind of trying to become accustomed to to a world that's drastically changed. It, it seems to kind of be something that you find interesting as a writer. Like you, you've often written men who are kind of clinging on to the old ways in worlds that have kind of moved on without them. It's a real feature of the writing in The Sopranos. What do you find so fascinating about that? And um, do you think that's one of those things that kind of like, it, it's a really, really interesting way when you've got seemingly unemotional protagonists, these aren't very expressive male characters, finding like an emotional heartbeat like that and textures around them that, that can kind of give a sense of emotionality to them. Is that something that's kind of fun for you to write? Yeah. I mean, look, I haven't even been in prison and I can't get over the fact that coffee costs $5 <laughs> a cup. 
And I, I can barely work Uber. I mean, so I can't imagine if that you just dropped me out of jail after uh, 25 years. I'd be completely <laughs> lost. The idea that, you know, the world is changing and you you can't seem to keep up. I, of, I often ask my kids, like, where was I when the rest of the world learned how to work this thing? Like, how, how they instinctively know how to handle, you know, order. my son takes my phone and his fingers fly through the keyboard, but pulling things up. And I was like, I don't know, where was I when you learned how to do this? You know, and I, and I think a lot of people feel that way. So it's really, uh, you know, something I think everybody can relate to in, in a certain way. Remember when I was a kid, you know, or a teenager, my we got a new washing machine at home and, and my grandmother who was, you know, in her seventies at that point, just absolutely was befuddled and just said, I'm done. And I said, no, it's not that hard. Grandma, watch me press this button. I should, I, I can't, she just absolutely was done with technology at that point. She refused to learn anything else. The world was changing so rapidly and she just refused to learn anything else. She was full up on technology, even though it was actually pretty simple. And I'm kind of feeling you know, getting to that point now and I'm not nearly that old, but I'm, you know, I'm old enough to go, I mean, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how to do this, you know, or, you know, or you, I know one way to make this thing work on my computer. And I do it the same way every time. And she was like, you know, there's a shortcut. <laughs> I don't want so, you know, a guy like Sly in this, in this situation, you know, the other thing too, is, you know, you know, you know, you said something about a lot of these guys aren't very expressive. I think one of the fun things for me about this character, you know, is this is a guy, you know, by virtue of the fact that he's been in jail for 25 years, you know, he's been working out and reading every day. So he's really smart. He's very, very well read. Uh, and he's he's sort of a, a, a much different person than he was 25 years ago. He's a, a kinder, gentler gangster, if you will. Uh, he is still a gangster nonetheless, but he's actually somebody who's a thinking person. You know, is uh, a moment in the pilot where he's shaking down the owner of a CBD store. And rather than just, you know, smash the guy's foot, he says, let me paint you a picture here of how this is going to go. I'm going to take my right foot and crush your left foot with it. I don't want to do it, but I will if you don't do what you want. You know, in, in 25 years ago, he probably just would have done it and then said, open the fucking safe, you know? So he's not that guy anymore. He is trying to be a better person. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, he is you know, kind of the thinking man's mobster where he's a little more, uh, a little more polished. I love the fact that um, for plausibility's sake, the, the pilot has to include a reference to how it's impossible that Sly could be that good looking at 75, how he could be in that great shape. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's and that's the the great thing about you know, well, he's in jail, he's working out every day. Of course, he looks like that, you know. <laughs> One of the things that's kind of true about this show, that's also true of The Sopranos and other parts of your filmography, is that there's great humor in investigating the kind of quiet parts of the lives of characters who often when they're on screen in, in other iterations, they're very explosive and we, we're concentrating mostly on their eruptions. You find quite a lot of rich material and especially quite a lot of humor in the moments where they're just trying to do regular things, where they're trying to kind of, where, where they're at their most banal, their most kind of listless and, and boring in a way. Can you tell me about sort of threading that in here? Because it's, it's a surprisingly funny show. And I, I guess, yeah, people don't often think about humor necessarily when they think about Boardwalk, when they think about Sopranos, when they think about Tulsa King, but it's in there and uh, yeah, it creeps up on you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this is a comedy. This is a dark comedy. Uh, and, and not, you know, not the kind of comedy where it's like a joke, a punchline, a setup and a punchline. It's, it's, it's really more a comedy of, of behavior. Uh, and, you know, when you take people, you know, a character like a, you know, again, uh, the character of a formidable mafia capo, 
You know, you know who that is, the strong guy is an aggressive guy. And then put them, put that person in a mundane situation, like go to the DMV. It, you know, it's going to be, you know, and that's the Department of Motor Vehicles here. If, if you have to go get a driver's license, it, it's going to be funny. I mean, because they're so you know, on a pedestal in so many different ways. And yet they are now subject to the same bullshit that you and I are, are subject to if you were trying to go deal with some bureaucrat in some government agency uh, or go to a bank and open a, a bank account. But, oh, you don't have this form or you don't have that. And that same frustration and watching a gangster deal with that stuff is just inherently funny. We had a premiere once of, of an episode of The Sopranos. And uh, there was a, a scene where Tony Soprano is sitting uh, at the kitchen counter, eating a bowl of cereal, reading the back of the cereal box, as we all do. He's just bored and he's reading whatever stupid stuff is on the back. of the box. And the audience howled with laughter because it was such a human moment to see the guy do that. But that's something you or I would do, a regular person would do. But to watch a mob boss sit there reading the box, a box of Cheerios was just funny. You go, oh, my God. Yeah, he does that, too. Just like me. Or he has opinions about movies and he has the same frustration with his kids. So putting Dwight, you know, in Tulsa King in these situations is just inherently going to have comedy in it and watch him deal with the same bullshit that we deal with is, is always going to be fun. And I, yeah, I love, I love exploring moments like that where he's just as, he's just as much a victim of, of the world as we all are. It doesn't matter that you're a mob captain. You still have to wait online at the DMV. Once you had, I mean, I'm trying not to spoil this for too many people. Typically script apart is a uh, spoiler, spoiler show. But in this case, I really want people as the show is so new to be able to discover it as they go. How did you begin to build out the characters Sly's character would encounter once once Dwight got to to Tulsa? There's something very fun that happens at the end of the pilot, and uh, yeah, you start to see the mechanics of where the rest of the season's going to go and what some of the conflicts might be. What's right. your process for once you've got that initial character? Okay, what's the most challenging environment to put him in? What are the most challenging kind of obstacles to put in his way? Right. Well, conflict is the essence of drama and, and comedy. I mean, so it's always about conflict. I mean, what, what, uh, you know, you never try to make, always try to make it difficult, more difficult for your protagonist than, than easy. You know, why, why make anything easy for them? Everything's got to be hit. You know, like I said, you go into the DMV, he go there, get a license, but you know, he, you don't get it exactly the way you want. Oh, we don't have an appointment. You got to come back next week. You got to take a driver's test, et cetera. So, you know, just make it, make it more complicated. So the same thing with these characters, the people you come up against, he comes up against are very different than him. And then, um, you know, you just sort of you, you sort of start with the questions. What if Well, what if this person was that way or what if this person, uh, you know, uh, was a, you know, kind of a criminal themselves? Or what if uh, what if this person also was in prison and relates to Dwight, you know, in a way like that? And just again, how do you how do you throw as much conflict into that relationship as possible and, and give them, you know, let them breathe and let them become real people. And then, then it's, you know, once you've got those characters, just putting them in the same box sandbox and let them interact and play with each other and, and butt heads, then that's the, uh, sorry, that's the way, you know, that I build it, you know, and, and take it from there. You mentioned this is a, this is a dark comedy and um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there were certain shows this reminded me of, and there was a really interesting circularity to seeing to seeing a bit of Barry, for example, in this. I don't know if that was a reference point mm -hmm. for you guys, but but seeing the uh, the influence of shows that themselves were influenced by shows that 
were only able to get on air and sort of take the risks they took because of previous work you've been involved in. Um, yeah, what, what's right. that like as someone who's kind of been in the business for so many decades to kind of see, to kind of be able to reap the rewards, I suppose, of those earlier shows you worked on that did kind of prove that you could break these rules and you could go in darker directions and you could take risks in the way that Boardwalk did, uh, that Sopranos did. I think it's, I think a, a lot of it is, is having confidence in the audience. You know, I mean, it's so much of it is believing in the audience and believing that they are smart. I like to assume my audience is smart, that they know a little about history, that they uh, can witness, you know, some adult content without having a stroke and a hissy fit. And like, <laughs> you know, the world is still going to, you know, they're still going to get up and go to work the next day, you know, and, and you know, sometimes, you know, you know, you deal with studios that they get very nervous and wringing their hands over, are people going to understand this joke? Are they going to get that reference? Are they, you know, and, and, you know, the tendency is to want to dump things down. And I always push back on that and say, I, you know, and there was a, one of the, one of my most favorite things that David Chase ever said, he wrote a line on the Browns. I can't remember what it was, but I think somebody at, the, at HBO said, you know, there's only going to be three people in the audience who get that. And David said, yeah, those are the three people I wrote it for. <laughs> and I said, good for you. He said, I don't care if they get it or not. Somebody's going to get it and they'll appreciate it. And here's the, if you don't get it, you don't get it or there, you know, you'll, you'll understand it because of context clues or, or you can look it up if you don't understand it. I can't tell you how many times I watched Mad Men. And then when it was over, I had to Google what, what did, what did they mean? Oh, that's what that was a, t a reference to. That was some pop culture thing from 1962 or, you know, whatever it was, it was fine. You know, and I actually liked it, you know, so, you know, the idea that everything has to be homogenized and so instantly understandable is it's just, you know, Somebody, you know, somebody said, and I've, I've said this before, I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but they said, art asks questions, it doesn't give answers, you know, and, you know, if you aspire to, to create art of any kind, even the art of storytelling and just entertaining somebody with a, a you know, a, a darkly comedic TV show, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay that the audience doesn't have everything wrapped up in a bow and spoon fed to you. I don't like that. I, I'd much rather end an episode of something and go, wow, and think about it. Or what did that mean? Or I didn't quite get that. Or, you know, I also try to write like, I try to write dialogue as if I'm sitting in a restaurant and eavesdropping on people and you're not completely understanding everything, but you're picking up snippets of the conversation and it's enough for you to infer what's going on there. You know, just keep it, like keep it right above that level where you don't have to know precisely, you know, it doesn't have to be so on the nose that you have to know precisely what they're talking about, but I get enough of it that I understand. And then that's what makes it feel real. You know, oh, that's how people talk. People very rarely say exactly what they mean. They they always talk in half sentences and half truths and they lie to each other and they lie to themselves. And, you know, you sort of have to read between the lines to get the, the reality out of it. Is that uh, like an iterative process, finding that right level of dialogue with the experience you have, Terence? Do you get that first time in that first draft? Not necessarily. I mean, I do go back and I'll reread it and I say, okay, if I knew nothing about these characters and I knew nothing about the circumstance I'm depicting here, what was going on, and I heard these words or read these words, what would I take away from it? And you have to sort of, it's kind of a, a tough exercise. You have to go, okay, I have to put myself in a situation where, again, my mind is a blank. I know nothing. I'm reading this. Do I understand what the writer is trying to convey to me? And sometimes I go, oh, I didn't, I, I don't think I would get this. And I make it a little clearer, or a little clearer with each pass of the script. I go, okay, now I think anybody who's paying attention will understand what I'm trying to convey. And from a creative perspective, 
Do you notice much of a difference writing a show like Tulsa King, which is obviously streaming era TV and there's there's a certain elasticity, a certain flexibility that theoretically comes in with that. Do you, do you find that creatively different to writing Boardwalk, writing Sopranos, things like that? Is it is it liberating to not have to necessarily stick to the same structures around ad breaks? Theoretically, you could play with the length of the episodes, things like that. Yeah, what, what kind of the main differences you've noticed, and and for the most, are they good or bad? Yeah, I mean, you know, but, but because this is really a comedy, you know, the the uh, you know, there's more license for silliness, for example, or uh, you know, a, a greater acceptance of uh, you know the reality of the world that you're in, because you are kind of this show is kind of played with a, a little bit of a wink to the audience, so it's not it's never going to be the crown. <laughs> uh, so I know that going into it. Uh, you know, and the audience should know that going in. This is a, you know, a light drama slash comedy. So that, you know, frees you up in, in a lot of ways. You know, Boardwalk was, you know, much more, um, you know, of a serious drama. I mean, and I think it had a lot of humor in it as well, uh, but it was a much more serious drama. And we tried to, you know, depict we tried to depict history accurately and there was a lot more uh, research that went into it in terms of, you know, making sure we were, we were, uh, you know, truthful to the the circumstances of, of some of the reality depicted on the show. Same thing with Sopranos, you know, it was obviously a much more serious drama, even though it, it had comedy. So, so this is very different. It's sort of a different set of muscles, you know, in terms of the writing, you know, you kind of, again, it is played a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, but you know, you know, that said, you know, the, the poignant moments are poignant and the, the action needs to feel real and it needs to feel like there's something at stake here uh even though it is funny you know at the end of the day you know i mean sometimes some of the most poignant things i've ever seen have been comedies you know i've never cried harder uh you know than at some neil simon plays you know and and oh my god i didn't see that coming you know and that's when that's what's great about it is you don't see it coming or even you know you watch a show like frazier uh, you know, which is really funny. And then it takes a left turn where you're like, oh my God, it's really, really deeply poignant, you know, which is, is so satisfying. And again, I asked a, a sort of fairly similar question earlier, but I'm really curious about like your instinct. Like when you, when you write an episode of TV that clicks for you on the page, like Pine Barrens, I suppose is the best example, re- widely regarded as one of the best episodes of TV of all time. Do you know once oh, you've- do, do you get, do you know instantly when you've written a Pine Barrens, when you've worked on an episode of Tulsa Kings that you, you just like leaps off the page to you? Do you, do you have a good sixth sense for like, this is, this is going to click? Uh, I, I didn't, I had no idea Pine Barrens was going to resonate the way it did. I, I thought it was funny. And, you know, the, uh, I thought it was very funny. The, the, the barometer is really just your own sensibility. Uh, and I, you know, it's the only thing you've got, you know, and it's, it's how we get, get through the day. You know, if I were to share a story with you, I'd say to myself before I told you, I'd say, I think this is funny. This happened to me. I think this is funny. I think Al's going to like this. And then I would share, that's why I would tell you, because I think it's funny. I think you're going to think this is funny, but I think this is sad. Probably you're going to think it's sad. So, you know, generally I think like, okay, I'm like most people. So if most, and if, if I find this funny, I think most people are going to agree with me. And that's, you know, unless you're completely uh, out of touch with the rest of the world, <laughs> generally that's true. You know, we, you know, something, I mean, yeah, you come home from work, oh, funny thing happened on the way home today. And you tell your family, if they all look at you blankly, they go, oh, that didn't go the way I thought, but usually they'll find it funny too. And then that's how I do it with writing. So if I hit on something that I think works and it makes me laugh, chances are 
are, it's going to make you laugh. And if you can do that enough, you can have a career doing this. <laughs> for a Is it funny at all to you to be, uh, you know, I think it was 91 that you arrived in LA, 94 that you got your, your yeah. first kind of credit. Um, you, as we yeah. mentioned at the top of this, you know, you came to LA to be a sitcom writer and you, you were writing specs for Fresh Prince. You were writing uh, for Sister Sister. Yeah. Now, 30 years on, you're, you're, you are here doing ostensibly your, your most comic outing yet. Like, is it, does it feel full circle? Do you feel right. like you took a strange detour to get to write yeah. your big comedy? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's funny. I didn't, you know, I, and again, I, I, I only, I mean, I, I wanted to be a sitcom writer mostly because I couldn't imagine writing anything that took longer than 22 minutes. I could not imagine how anybody could possibly write a movie or even a one hour show. So but a 22 minute sitcom episode, I thought I could do. And I thought I was funny. And I was told I was funny by my friends and family. And I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. So as I slowly, uh, you know, branched out into, you know, longer forms, uh, you know, I was, I was a drama writer then suddenly, but then the dramas that I gravitated to and then started soliciting that wanted me to write for them were dramas that had comedy in them. And then the best gift was, you know, dramas that had character based comedy, not set up and payoff. You know, it turns out I was a, a much better at the comedy of the Sopranos or Tulsa King than I am as at sitcom comedy. You know, I wrote on a show called the PJs. It was a animated or claymation foammation show actually with I Eddie Murphy that, yeah. as a character. And I wrote with a murderer's row of, of comedy writers, Dave Flabot, Saladin Patterson, Michael Price, Larry Wilmore, Mark Wilmore, Steve Tompkins, one after the other, many of these guys who ran on and still writing for the Simpsons. Uh, I mean, to sit at that writer's table, you know, and I go, oh, you think you're funny? You ain't shit. I mean, look <laughs> at these guys. I mean, just like you, you can't believe how out of your league you feel when you're sitting with these. These are the best comedy writers in the business. And these are the guys I worked with who are my close friends. Uh, but I found what, what I do best is the kind of comedy that comes from behavior. And just, again, it's not a joke and a punchline set up and a punchline particularly, but it is again, the observational humor of take a Tony Soprano and put him in a situation or take Paulie and Christopher and throw them in the woods and let them just behave the way they normally behave. And that's where I shine comedically, I think, and, you know, less so in the traditional sitcom world, which is again, ironically is the place I thought I would find my home, but I actually found it in dark comedic drama. <laughs> And in terms of the future, Terence, like, uh, how, do you have multiple seasons of the show mapped out? Like, how far are you looking ahead in terms of Tulsa King? No, no, not mapped out exactly. But, you know, when I first started it, I thought, oh, this this is e easily a story I think, I hope, can go on for four or five seasons uh, or series, as you call them in the UK. Um, <laughs> I always say, they say, oh, is this series one? I go, Oh, you mean season one? Yes. It gets confusing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do have it. I do kind of, you know, I did start this with a, an end game in mind for Dwight's character. Uh, but, you know, I always, I always make the analogy, you know, a, a series is like you're driving from Los Angeles to New York and you're going to make stops along the way. You know, you're going to stop in Las Vegas and Detroit and Chicago and, Pittsburgh, and then you'll end up in New York at some point. And each one of those stops being, you know, New York to Las Vegas is season one and Vegas to Detroit is season two. And how, how do we get there in between are the little episodes? So I, I have a vague idea. Uh, but you know, like everything else, like I, I never wrote a term paper in school and that wasn't due the next day. Uh, I have to have pressure. 
Uh, so I don't really know until somebody says, you know, we're shooting this in six weeks. You know, we've got to make this. <laughs> now, suddenly I have the clarity of of the gun to my head. And I go, OK, is it the red one or the blue one? That's the blue one. Let's go this way. Uh, until then, I'm kind of thinking, oh, it could be this. It could be that. But then once somebody says, all right, now it's go time. We got to we got to make decisions. Then I can have that clarity and just sort of do it. You know, it's funny. We, you know, we talked about the Wolf of Wall Street before. I wrote this. I wrote the first draft of the Wolf of Wall Street in 18 days. Uh, it took me two months to get to those 18 days of, of procrastination and research. And, oh, I can't write until I have dinner with Jordan's dad. And, you know, but then once it got to the point where, you know, Martin Scorsese is waiting for the script and he's expecting it in three weeks. I was like, oh, shit. Then suddenly, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't get out of my chair for 18 days and I just wrote it and said, OK, here it's done. So that's kind of how I do it. I would not recommend that, by the way, but that's how I do it. Does your commitment to Tulsa King now mean that kind of other projects have had to been put on the back burner? Like I, I spoke to David Chase a while ago who was saying um, this was around Many Saints of New York and he, he said that he was gearing up to write a sequel, but that he wanted to write it with you. Is, is that happening? Right. It is not as of yet. Uh, I keep holding out hope. Actually, David called me while I was talking to you before. I happened to glance at my phone and he uh, <laughs> left me a message. So maybe he's calling to do it. I don't know. That would be great. Yeah, we could do a three-person. That would be like, get him on the phone right now. Uh, yeah, that as of right now, it's not happening. Uh, but I would I would do it in a heartbeat, of course. Anything anything David ever wanted to do, I would say yes to immediately. He's, he's my mentor and, and one of the best uh, writers I've ever m- known. Uh, that is not happening, but yeah, I mean, it's hard you know, we, we don't officially have word on season two for Tulsa yet. So I'm, I'm optimistic that it will happen. Uh, and if that happens and certainly that's what I will, uh, that's what I'll be doing for next year. And if not, I've got some feature projects and a couple of other TV things I'm playing around with. So, um, very lucky in the sense that I'm, I'm, I always seem to be busy. So, uh, I'll be doing something. Oh, I hope it's Tulsa King, but, uh, stay tuned. Is there anything that you you haven't yet achieved, a story that you haven't yet been able to tell that is is kind of your white whale at this point that you're really hoping to be able to tick off at some point? You know, there are there are several TV pilots I've written, uh, you know, that are, uh, you know, not not really, you know, moving ahead for various reasons. You know, a lot of them are, you know, very expensive period pieces, There's a book called Tokyo Underworld. Uh, about a uh, true story about a guy named Nick Zipetti, who uh, was sort of a low-level criminal who moved to Japan uh, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of World War II, you know, as a Marine and uh, kind of hooked up. He was a supply sergeant and during the occupation and rebuilding of Japan, kind of hooked up with the Yakuza. And within two years of getting there was a millionaire, you know, because he sold goods to the Yakuza that were for the government. Uh, that's a that's a story I love to tell. There's another movie I wrote called The Dale, a very true, uh, true story about a woman named Elizabeth Carmichael, who uh, in 1974 invented a three-wheeled car called The Dale, that got 70 miles to the gallon. And this was at the height of the gas crisis in the 70s. And she was going to put Detroit out of business and it was going to be great. It turned out to be a complete scam. Not only was the car fake, she was actually a con artist. Uh, she was a trans woman named Elizabeth Carmichael, who, as you know, before she uh, transitioned, was a man uh, named, uh, I think, Richard Michaels, who was actually on the land from the federal government for counterfeiting. So it's a great story. And wow. that's kind of, you know, we're hoping to get that made as well. I, I think I'd also like to write a memoir. Uh, at some point, you know, I think I'd like to try that. Um, and, and I will, I just, you know, I'm not there yet, but it's sort of, you know, percolating and, you know, people seem to enjoy the story of my crazy life. So at some point <laughs> I'll, I'll put that down on paper. 
I uh, look forward to all these projects. Terence, thanks so much for joining us today. I should let you call Absolutely Mr. Chase back. <laughs> yeah, say yeah, that to Mr. Call Chase. Him, uh, see what he wants. Like, <laughs> stop calling me. I told you not to call me here. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I will do that. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Really fun talking to you. And uh, if you ever find yourself in LA, uh, give me a shout. We'll be for, you can have tea. I'll have coffee and uh, <laughs> take it from there. Bring Sounds your good. coat. Bring your heavy coat. I'll be bringing it. Don't worry. All Terrence, right. thanks again so much. Really do appreciate it. Same here. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>